If you would, open your Bible to the first chapter of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible, you pick the right Sunday to come because at Orchard Community Church, we have a special on the first Sunday of every week where you can take a free Bible if you'd like. It's in the pew in front of you, and if you need it, it's yours. By all means, keep it. Before we get started today, though, I'd like to ask you a couple questions. Um, How many of you, don't have to raise your hand, have attained a perfect walk with God? How many of you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and you love your neighbor in the same way? Oh, she keeps raising her hand. Okay, good. I'm not done yet. Um, How many of you are serving God to your maximum capacity? And less hands and less hands. How many of you please Christ with your life in every way? How many of you are satisfied with your prayer life? If you've answered yes to all these questions, you may close your Bible and take a nap. Someone less delusional will wake you up at the end of this message. The Apostle Paul knows that we haven't arrived. He hasn't arrived. He said he still needs to press on toward the things that he needs to attain in the book of Philippians. He said, I'm not there yet. He knows the Philippian church hadn't arrived yet. And he, we're, we've been looking at this book of D.A. Carson's called The Prayers of Paul or Praying with Paul. And before this chapter, he goes through a litany of reasons why we don't pray. And here's a few of them. Too busy? Feeling spiritually dry? Feel no need to pray? Everything's going pretty good. Don't really need to pray right now? Too bitter? Something in my life I'm upset with? Some person or God himself? A little too ashamed to pray because of my own sin life, my own failings. Or I'm just content with where I'm at. Mediocrity is okay. I don't need to do a little better in life. I read this and got zinged. I don't know about you. I think I've used all of those excuses or more. And he comes and tells us in the book why all of them in one way or another are a form of idolatry and should be fought against. And by the time you finish reading the chapter, you feel worse than a worm under a rock like... Wow, I'm so sorry, Lord, that I have failed you in this way. But then he takes the next chapter to say, you want to know how to overcome this? You want to know how to overcome these hurdles in your prayer life? How to overcome a spiritual drought, a dry season in your walk with the Lord? Do you want to know what to pray and how to pray when you don't want to pray? Well, that's what Paul's encouraging the Philippians with. So, For those of you who weren't here last week, um, we're we're going through a few of the epistles in Paul's prayers right now. Paul happens to be up here in Rome under house arrest. Last week we looked at a letter from a little house church in Colossae. Today we're looking at one up in Macedonia with the Philippians. And next week it's Ephesus, where Paul writes very similar prayers to these three churches, but each one has a different theme. Now, Up here in, oh, I'm sorry, in, uh, didn't want to go back. Philippi was radically different from Colossae. This was on a, it was a Roman colony. It was on a popular trade route. It was a a real prosperous city. There was no synagogues there. I don't know if you remember the story, but um, Paul was told to go to Macedonia in a vision, and he went there. And when he got there, he found a woman named Lydia by a river, and he started a Bible study with her, and she offered her home to start a church. Well, when, when this started, there was a, uh, a demon-possessed girl who knew who they were and what they were about, and she wound up getting saved through the ministry of Paul, 
And the people who were making good money off of her got very upset. And so Paul and others wound up getting thrown into jail. In jail, God did a miraculous thing, brought an earthquake, and released their shackles, and the Philippian jailer got saved. Now the church is starting to build in Lydia's home. Well, this was around 50 A.D., and and Paul went back twice in 56 and 57 A.D. to see this church that he loved, and he loved these people, and you can see the love for them. And now he's three years later under arrest in Rome, and he's writing this letter back to them saying, I may never see you again, and I'm... I just want to let you know how much I love you and how much I want you to continue to grow in your faith. So even though he was separated by prison, his love had not diminished in any way. And he wrote the letter for several reasons. One, to thank him for a financial gift that they sent. I believe this is the third time they've sent him a gift. But he wanted to encourage them to stay firm in the face of persecution and to to stand up to false teachers, to live godly lives in any circumstance, whatever they find themselves in. He was exhorting them to be humble, to stay united as they were having some problems in the church with complaining and disunity. They were an anxious people. And he writes to them in the last chapter about how to overcome some of their anxieties. But one of the main focuses is rejoicing. This is often called the epistle of joy. He said, no matter what your circumstance, no matter where you find yourself or how tough life is, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So he spurs them on to to grow in love. Now, I think if you look at that list, those are all the things that we could really use today. It's a timeless letter to us to say, look, things might be tough, but learn to rejoice in the Lord. So he does mention joy 16 times in the passage, and he tells them that the secret to joy is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so he encourages them to develop that relationship with Christ. He shows them that the priority in your life should be humble service. To have the mind in them that was the same mind that was in Christ, who, although he was God, humbled himself and became obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And overall and overarching underneath everything he does, he talks about if you think right, you will act right. So he's trying to change the mind of the Philippians to think differently. That's his approach. So let's look at the introductory verses here, verses 3 through 8. Paul prays, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, this is similar to the prayer we looked at last week in Colossians. He starts out with, I thank my God. And last week we saw that he started the prayer with thanksgiving. He then goes on to say, in all of my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy. And here last week we saw the same thing, that Paul prayed for other people constantly with joy. And then he says that he was praying because he heard of how the gospel is continuing to increase, which is exactly what he said with the Colossians. He said, I have heard that you are partaking in the gospel with me and it's growing through you. And then he says that, He was confident that this God who started a work in them would be faithful to complete it. 
Not only does he focus their, the prayers on God and, and, and says that he's confident in God, but he talks about this cyclical cycle to our prayers, right? Where I'll pray for something, and when I hear it's going well in your life, I'll pray for it some more. And here he's saying, I know that the stuff that you're starting to do in your life will continue to do it because it's Christ who's going to confidently do it until the day he returns. And then he says to him that I I have you all in my heart, and God could testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This was in the Thessalonican prayer that he prays in love for the people that he's praying for. So there's similarities there. And in the prayer itself, there are some similarities. And he says this in verses 9 through 11, and this is our focus for the day. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here he prays first for an increase in their knowledge. And that's what we saw last week. You want to know the will of God? Well, the Holy Spirit will help you to come to know him better. You'll gain more, excuse me, more knowledge and wisdom as you spend time in the Word of God with the Holy Spirit. He then also says that, that beyond just gaining in knowledge, that they will become pure and blameless for the day of Christ. And in the last letter to the Colossians, he spoke about being patient and enduring, keeping that end day in sight. And he says the same thing to him here. It's like it's not just for this moment, it's for the day that's coming. And then he says that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And last week, one of the signs of someone who is growing in the will of God would be someone who is bearing good fruit. And then, of course, at the end, to the glory and praise of God. And to all things, with the Colossians, he said, May everything you do as an end result please the Lord. And we had this quote last week from D.A. Carson, the knowledge of God's will, which was last week's topic, is not an end in and of itself, but has as its goal such Christian maturity that our deepest desire is to please the Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer for the Philippians is the same. Paul tells the Philippians, and he tells us, that in your prayer life, in your spiritual life, I want you to please the Lord Jesus Christ. But this week he's not saying, I want you to do it just by gaining wisdom and insight and the knowledge of God. He's saying, I want you to pray that you can overcome your joylessness, your anxiety, your stagnant growth. I want you to have your love abound in such a way that it results in praise and glory to God. In short, Paul is praying for revival in the Philippian church. For people who are feeling somewhat dry and lifeless, he's saying, I want to breathe back into you that spirit that you first had when Christ began the good work in you. What do you think of when I say you're going to revive someone or something? Something like this? <laughs> right? Or maybe like this? This is, this is my wife and I, we kill every plant we've ever gotten near. Paul knows that in order for a revival to happen, it's got to be a work of God. Because the thing that needs reviving, the person that needs CPR, the plant that's dying cannot fix itself. Someone has to come in and aid it. Someone has to come in and give it that life support. Someone has to bring some sort of blessing to it, some sort of life to it, so that it can get rejuvenated. 
And Paul knows that about revival. He's saying, look, I am not telling you to try and revive yourselves. Don't, you know, pound your own heart and try to make yourself come back to life. I'm praying that God will do that in your life. So he prays that God will bring it. Well, he, he says first, in order for a revival to come, there have to be certain elements of revival. So there's essential things that have to come to you before you will be revived by God. And he prays for these three essential elements. He says that it's his prayer that their love, their knowledge, and their depth of insight will increase. So I'll just put these up here. The abounding love, the increasing knowledge, and a deepening insight. Those are the three things that he sees are absolutely essential in order for a revival to start, that these things start happening in the church. Now, he's already called this church a loving church. He said, I know you're a loving church, but I want your love to abound more and more. They're loving, but they're fighting. They're complaining. They're having issues within the church. They're not getting along. And Paul is praying for them to first love each other better and then to love other people and then to love everybody more and more deeper, in a better way. He wants them from to go from being possessors of love to progressors of love. Um, one of the commentaries I saw said the imagery here is of a bucket sitting at the bottom of a waterfall where God is just shedding his love abroad in their hearts like a waterfall. It's filling them to overflowing. This is what Paul is praying for them here. And he's saying that I want this love to be a directed love first. It's got to be specific and targeted toward the person that's sitting next to you in a pew. And then it can be a general love. Whereas the Philippians were taking pride in being loving the whole world, but not loving their neighbor. David Jeremiah says this, To love the whole world for me is no chore. My only real problem is the guy next door. (laughs) Abounding. Abounding those that you know more. Loving all the other people with the love of God that he gives you. It's good for us to pray. It's good for us to pray as we love each other, to pray for that love to increase. And it's good for us to say that that love might spill out, like in a block party in a few weeks. I have heard the comment over and over again of people who have come to this church that said this is a loving church. I feel welcomed here. I feel God's spirit here. I I feel embraced when I walk in the door. And as those people spend a little bit of time here, they've gone out and told their friends, I found a great place of love. You ought to come check it out. You ought to meet some of these people. Well, we're going out in the community not to build this church this next couple of weeks. We're going out there to share the love of Jesus Christ with them, people who need it. That's what we're about here. It's exactly what Paul is praying for. May that love continue to abound in you. And yet... He says that this love is constrained by two things, an increasing knowledge and a deepening insight. He knows that in the absence of love, knowledge is useless. Right? 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I am nothing. Likewise, the absence of knowledge, love just becomes some sort of sediment. It just becomes sort of pluralism. Well, I'll just love everybody. It doesn't really matter because it's not a love based on knowledge. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 8, the first few verses, 
We know that we possess all knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Knowledge without love is useless. Love without knowledge is useless. That's what he's telling them. And you will see two extremes of this in the church. You will see the people that say, all we need is love, right? The Beatles. That's all there is. Doctrine is just something to divide the church. We don't need doctrine. Christ said you would know us by our love, not by our doctrine. What is so important is that we love each other, that we accept each other. That no matter what people are doing, no matter what they believe, no matter what lifestyle they have, if they profess to be a Christian, I'm going to love them and it's okay. And then you have the other side of it. The people who are rather harsh in their attitude sometimes because people disagree with them in doctrine. There's no love there. It's like, look, I, I can be cold of heart and I can be difficult because I am correct in my doctrine. And you need to understand what's right for you. All head, no heart, or all heart, no head, both are warned against here. You need abounding love, and you need to have the knowledge coming together. We have to love God with a fervent heart, but that love has to line up with scriptural truth. Jesus was a great example of this balance. He prayed to his Father that we would love each other as they love each other, that we would be one as they were one. But then he also prayed in the same prayer, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is your truth. right? To, to not just give them the love that we have, but to give them the truth that we have. The Apostle Paul. Paul says to the Philippians that I love you. I love you with the love of Christ. I long for you. He had this deep affection for them, and yet he gave them the whole counsel of God. He, he taught them. Great, great emotions, great feelings mixed with rich theology is what's needed for revival to start happening. Soup and sandwich, two sides of Velcro, right? You can't, you can't have one without the other. It's got to go together. But then he goes even beyond that. He said it's not just the acquisition of knowledge, but it's the application of knowledge. That's what this insight is. Your version might say discernment. Biblical love is anchored in the truth of Scripture, and it's regulated by it. But we also need to have insight, which tells us how to apply it, how to use this truth and knowledge in love skillfully to speak to one another, how to interpret that knowledge, that we can use it properly to build each other up. If it wasn't for the knowledge of the Scripture, we wouldn't know who to worship. If it wasn't for having insight in the Scripture, we wouldn't know how to worship or how to love. Sometimes this deepening insight just comes from experience. You just walk long enough with God and you begin to realize the things that you have to do and the things that you shouldn't do because experience is the best teacher if you learn from it. It's always the heart of Paul's prayer. Is in order for you to grow, in order for you to become more Christ-like, in order for you to experience revival, we need to focus you on the right things, and that's love and truth and Jesus Christ himself. So he says, you know what? I'm praying for these elements, but I also want to pray for revival excellence. And if you look at the prayer here, he says that he prays their love would abound more and more in knowledge of depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best. Your Bible may say, approve what is excellent. The same concept. Love is not 
the end itself, nor is knowledge, nor is insight. Paul wants those things to increase in the church so that they may be able to take all of that love, knowledge, and, and insight and begin to make good discernment, make good choices. Now, there are some scholars that disagree a little bit on this, but they really don't disagree. Some say that discerning what is best means put to proof the things that differ. Make decisions between two things that seem to be good. Not right and wrong, but two things that seem to be good. i give you a good example of this. Uh, Wayne Grudem, uh, a biblical author and for 20 years a teacher at a seminary, Trinity Seminary in Chicago, uh, had a, a wonderful ministry, but his wife was struggling with fibromyalgia. And they had friends in Phoenix, and every time they go visit the friends in Phoenix, his wife would feel great. And he was convinced from Scripture, I think Ephesians 5.28, that husbands should love their wives as their own body. And he said, you know what? If I truly loved my wife the way I should, and that was my body, I would move my body to Phoenix. So he made the choice to go to Phoenix where there was really nothing there for him and to leave this huge ministry that he had in Chicago. And he hooks up with a little seminary in Phoenix, and he winds up having just as big of a ministry, if not bigger, there in Phoenix. But he had a decision to make, and his depth and insight of knowledge said, I am going to make a decision between two good things based on my love for my wife. And so he made the decision, and it was obviously one that God blessed. The other one is to, to test the superior things, the things that really matter. It's not just A or B. We have countless decisions in night in life, and sometimes they all look pretty good. Like, which job do I take, or where do I live, or those types of things. They all look pretty good. And he's saying, what I want you to do with this love and this knowledge and this insight is to discern which of these is morally excellent. Which of these is superior in God's eyes? Which of these would bring the most glory to him? Which of these has the most eternal significance? See beyond just the obvious things and look to the significant things. How will this help me become more Christ-like if I pursue it? How would this, which one of these lines up best with the theology that's in the Word of God? And he's saying, as you grow in your knowledge and your insight, your discernment and your love, you will be able to begin to choose which of these things are the best to do. I could give you a million examples, but maybe what do you do with your money? How many great organizations and missionaries and things could you support? How do you decide? You have to start really analyzing every one of them according to Scripture, and you have to find discernment. You have to have a love for the people that are, are being supported, whatever the case may be. You could do it with every bit of your life, your time, your talent, any aspect of your life. You've got to make these kind of decisions, and this is what Paul's saying. Don't make decisions based on just mere law, like tithing or something, but on a transformed heart, by God's grace. Continue to grow. Let him do this work in you. I'm praying that God will continue to do this work in you so that your whole value system, your whole worldview, everything will be changed by God so that you will be able to discern what is best. You will be able to approve what is excellent, and then you will make that right choice. He spends several pages in this chapter talking about a pastor who was called to the ministry of word and prayer. And he said, those are the two excellent things that God gives a pastor. And yet pastors are so distracted by so many other things in life, which are all good things sometimes, 
whatever it might be, there are a million different things that can distract a pastor from his ministry of word and prayer. And Paul encourages them to keep going back to the things that are excellent. Carve out that time to study and pray because that's what is good. He knows that God's going to have to transform the hearts for us to be able to do this. So he prays for it. D.A. Carson says this, Each believer must ask, To what extent do I pray for excellent things? Things judged excellent in God's eyes, both for myself and for those around me. Do I pray that my love may abound more and more in knowledge and the depth of insight so that I can distinguish between what is passable and what is excellent, between what is acceptable and what is best, testing out and approving what is best in my own life? Do I pray this for my church? Paul prays for what is excellent, and it is quite certain that this sort of excellence cannot be attained without prayer. Are we praying for each other like this? Are we praying that each one of us will make wise choices, not just for our children, but I mean wise choices based on God's word and on the love that we have one for another? Are we praying that God increases these things in our life so as individuals and as a church we can get to a place where God would have us to be in spiritual growth and maturity and maybe kickstart that dryness that's in our life to a place to where we're again feeling vibrant and serving the Lord. So he said, all right, here's the basic elements of a revival. We need love, knowledge, and insight. Here's the, the, the excellence that's required for a revival is that we discern well and approve the right things. But then Paul prays that I want to see evidence. I want to see evidence of the revival. And he said, what, what are the things that will come from someone who's beginning to experience revival or a church that's beginning to experience revival? He said that, and maybe, he said, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ. Now, this is translated in many Bibles, so you may be, or in order that you may be, or the ESV just says, so be, that you may be discerned what is best, so be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. In other words, if we are experiencing this type of revival, it will turn us into the type of people that will be pure and blameless at the day of Christ. And remember, it's Christ that's working a good work in us, that someday he will return, and at that day we will be pure and blameless, and we will have this fervent love for God because he is working a good work with us, and he's going to be faithful to complete it. We are to be progressing toward this. And there's a couple of different parts of it. First is to be looking for Christ. He says here that we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So pure just means without hypocrisy, that we're genuine, that we are who we are all the way to the core. I found a little quote said, be who you is because if you is who you ain't, you ain't who you is. <laughs> right? How many of us might have a little fight in a car on the way to church and then walk in the door with our Christian smiles? He's talking about being pure to the core, to, to being on the outside and the inside the same person. And then he talks about being blameless. And it's interesting, this word blameless, the Greek word, is the part of an animal trap that you would tie the bait to. So he's saying, don't be the thing that causes someone else into a trap and stumbles a brother. Being blameless is that you are acting right toward other people. The purity is internal, the blameless is toward other people. 
So he's saying that when, when revival comes, our core being is changed, and it should be evident to all those around us that we're becoming generally loving people for the day of Christ. Now, the day of Christ is different than the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment and divine wrath. The day of Christ is a day when Christ appears for final salvation, for glorification, for uh, just coming to consummate all that he has promised to his saints. So it's a forward-looking prayer. And he's saying that as we mature in our faith, as we continue to grow in our faith, we will continue to grow in our knowledge of Christ and our focus on Christ until the day when he comes. It's also kind of interesting that um, there were no synagogues in Philippi. There was no legalism there because there was a very small Jewish influence. So there wasn't much of the law being imposed on these people as there was at Colossae. So in Colossae, when, when they were having all these struggles, Paul kept referring them back to the cross, back to the cross, that legalism, the law, and everything has died at the cross. But when you're in a place where you're not being constrained by legalism, then he constrains you by the day of the Lord. I know some of you here were from Calvary Chapel. I was from a Calvary Chapel, which totally just got away with everything. It's like Christ died for it all. It's We're free in Christ. We can do almost whatever we want. And so the Calvary chapels taught almost exclusively the coming of the Lord. They did not focus as much on the Old Testament of the law or the cross nearly as much as they did on the coming of the Lord because when we're focused outwardly, we're constrained by that day. We're not constrained to live legalistic lives based on law, on rules, on regulations, on traditions, but we are to look forward to the last day, keeping that in mind that we haven't yet attained, but we're pressing on for the goal, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christ is the motivator himself for us to try and pray for each other for this revival. So that's a part of it. The second part of it, he goes, that we are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. So not just looking for Christ, but living in Christ. And this was Paul's theme verse, I think, in um, verse 21, I believe, of the first chapter. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain that I want Christ to work in me and through me. I want everything about my life to be the life of Christ, my nature, my behavior to be the nature and behavior of Christ. I want my mind to be the mind of Christ. I want you to see Christ when you see me. I want to point you to Christ, understanding that apart from Christ and his righteousness, we produce nothing. Yes, he's given us his righteousness. It was a gift at salvation. However, this working out of this righteousness, this fruit bearing that we will be doing is something that God does as we pour our energy into the task. John 15, the vine and the branches, right? He is the vine, we are the branches, and we can't bear fruit apart from Christ being the one that works through us. So Paul's saying that these things should increase in your life. The fruit should increase of your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all these things that are the fruit of the Spirit given to us are the things that should become more evident when a revival starts to happen. He's saying, I really want you now to be what you ought to be, which is what one day you certainly will be in Jesus Christ, because the day of the Lord is coming when he will make all things right. Second part of this, or the final part of this, is not only that we are to be looking for Christ and living in Christ, but he says to the glory and praise of God that we are to be worshiping Christ. You know, the ultimate end of Paul's prayers always is that God would be glorified. 
the ultimate goal of all that God does in our lives as believers is that he might be glorified. And Paul is rejoicing for what Christ has done and is doing and will do in this church. And he said, I know what I'm exhorting you to. I want this revival to come to you that you may become true worshipers of God that it won't be something that's manufactured. It'll be something where heaven has now become more real, more focused for you, more important. Christ will be the center of your lives, your thoughts, your hearts, and worship won't just be an exercise, but it'll be a normal, natural part of the outflowing of this love that's abounding in you. He starts the book to the Philippians with the name of Jesus, and he ends it that way. He mentions Jesus 40 times in the letter, seven times in the first 11 verses. He talks about Christ. Christ-likeness is always Paul's goal, both in his life and in his prayers and his instruction. Kathy, this week, sent a little blurb to me when she saw what I was going to preach on. She goes, praying for revival. She goes, I just pray for survival. (laughs) I thought, you know, I think most of us do. And then you have to ask yourself, are our prayers focused right? Are they focused on the right person? Are we really concentrated on Jesus Christ? Are we really becoming more loving? Are we really growing in our knowledge? Are we really discerning what's better? Are we bearing better, you know, good fruit? Are we worshiping God in spirit and in truth? Are those things happening? If so, pray for more. Keep praying for it. Keep it going. Don't just let it die because you've reached some place. We never finish maturing in Christ. We never get to the place where we've arrived. But also understand this. It cannot be manufactured. He's not telling us to revive ourselves. He's telling us to pray to God for it. The D.A. Carson says this, Paul is not simply exhorting people to be better, nor is he trying to organize revival. Still less is he berating fellow believers for the lack of revival, what he's doing is praying for revival. This is something that just doesn't happen by our own efforts. It is difficult for us to say, I'm going to start loving more unless God empowers me to love more. It's difficult for me to say, I'm going to grow in my wisdom and insight and discernment unless God starts giving me some of that wisdom and insight and discernment through his Holy Spirit as I study his word. This doesn't mean that we can't pursue this goal. This doesn't mean we can't try to love others more. This doesn't mean we can't learn more. We should be doing that. I I found this quote from C.S. Lewis. He said, It would be quite wrong for us to think that the way to become loving is to sit down trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for us is all perfectly simple. Do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we learn one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, then you presently will come to love them. Just start acting like a loving people and God will get on the bandwagon and work with you and maybe shed some more of his love so that it will help. Continue. you know. He says it in the second chapter. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God, God who works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Right? God's working in you. Christ is going to confidently complete this thing in you, so work with him. You know, Make this stuff happen. And in all you do, remember that Christ is at hand. He's with us. He's present. He's near to us, and yet he's about to return. I have a, a, a little life saying that live each day as if it was your last, and one day you'll be right. There's always some Africans that missionaries reach out to, right? And one guy told me he knew this group. He asked this guy, was very old, how old are you? He says, one day old. 
He said, what do you mean one day old? He goes, every night when we sleep, we die. And every morning we wake up, we, we start again. So all of us are one day old. Pretty interesting way to live life, right? Happy birthday to me every day. <laughs> so none of us are perfected yet, except maybe Frank. Um, Paul knew that about the Philippian church. He knows that about us. God knows it about us. And like Paul, we know we haven't attained, but we have to forget what lies behind. We have to strain for what lies ahead. Press on for the goal, the prize, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Because admit it, we need revival. But you know what? God wants to bring it, so let's pray for it. Amen? Let's do that. Father God, it's all about you. It always has been. And yet, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the universe and sit on the throne and think that we can somehow accomplish all in our own strength and effort. And yet, your word is there to show us that Christ, who can do all those things, humbled himself and became obedient. Let us learn from his example, Lord. Let us learn from his love. Let us learn from the truth that he shared with us. And help us, Lord, by your spirit to become this type of people, these people that not only love you but love each other and that that love would spill out around that others may come to know the great and glorious grace that you have saved us with. Thank you for the prayers of Paul. We pray that they would seep deep into our heart and change our lives as we pray. Help us to approach your throne with boldness as we do, Lord, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.